Good morning, church. My name is Colton, and I have the honor of reading our passage this morning. It's going to be Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 26. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 48. Starting in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all of the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls from them, falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into his houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in the land of Egypt, on man and beast in every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been seen in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant in the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Thank you, Colton, for reading the, a portion of what will be our scripture passage this morning. Well, last week's sermon title was, Let's Get Ready to Rumble, uh, part one. And I used more war, battle, and fighting metaphors in a single sermon than I've ever used before, (laughs) and perhaps in a whole year of preaching in one sermon. And that was only the first four rounds of ten But when we come to this portion of the book of Exodus, I think we're right to say what I said last week and we'll say again this week, is that when we come to this portion of Exodus, we've come to the main event. We've come to the rumble between the gods to the death and there will be only one winner, the the gods of Egypt and the god of gods. This week we have part two and we're going to cover rounds four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. In addition to using war and battle and fighting language, it's my hope that we would also bring out the softer, compassionate, 
tender heart of God behind all this fighting. God fights, we will see, because he loves. Let's pray and we'll ask God as we, for his blessing as we study this passage. Heavenly Father, I, th- I think so often when we think of you, especially as we think of you in the Old Testament, we think of fire and judgment and storm and lightning. And we're not wrong to do so. Because it's there. It's like it's, it's, it's front and center in this week's passage. But there's more. And so I pray this morning as we hear your word preached and taught and gather together, we would know more of you as you intend for us to know you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For the last few weeks, I've, I've been the middle school cross-country coach, just volunteering a few afternoons a week for a local school. And if you know anything about cross-country, you know you run, right? And then you run some more, and then you run. That's really all that you do in cross-country. That is the sport, running. And so in this effort to help our athletes, because it's middle school, it's not high school or even college, uh, in an effort to help them love the sport and love to train, but not to burn out just running, 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 uh, we would often end, I would often end practice with what I called the feats of strength. <laughs> um, which were what you might imagine. We, we would compete at the end of practice to see who could do the most push-ups or hang from the pull-up bars because, don't tell them this, but they couldn't do pull-ups, right? <laughs> Very well. Um, so we just hang and see who could hang the longest through a plank to see who could do the longest plank. One, one day we ended practice near a playground and we'd see who could do the most monkey bars. Like that was the feat of strength that day. And, and besides cultivating a love of sport and competition, the feats of strength often provided a source of humor that I would just tap over and over again. And that is that I would talk about when we would stroll up to a race, you know, the start line, in our tiny tank tops, in our short shorts, <laughs> then the other teams would be so afraid that they were actually running against the high school weightlifting team. That was, that, was my, that was my line. That was my humor, right? And when you, when you dissect humor, the joke usually dies, as sort of happens when you dissect things, but for anything other than a bunch of distance runners. Like, that's what we were. And that's okay. We were a pretty good group of distance runners. As we've been reading through the story of Exodus, and, and particularly last week and this week, it, it, it just feels to me, it seems to me, as though Pharaoh is walking up to this starting line, Right? And he thinks he's a little huger than he really is. And the Lord is going to put him in his place. Pharaoh thinks that his name is great. And that all the world should behold with reverence and awe the name of Pharaoh. But slowly, round after round of battle with the Lord... The Lord teaches Pharaoh what he wants to teach us all, that he's not such a big deal, that his name isn't that great. And and, and what we see in Pharaoh is, I think, something that that, that if we're honest, we, we, we see this own strand in us, and that is this, that when we don't esteem the Lord's name as great, we're going to find another name 
or multiple names to esteem as great. And the name that we most often esteem as great, as weighty, and value is our own. The Lord means to free us from that. There, There are two very specific aspects of the Lord's greatness that I want us to see this morning from this passage. And I'm going to spend most of the time on the first one, but but hang on to the end because the last one is just as important. The first aspect of the greatness of God's name is that he defeats all of his enemies. Now that was underway last week, and so we're just going to pick up right there again. The greatness of the Lord's name is that he defeats all of his enemies. If you're new to the Bible, new to our church even, um, and you're just coming in perhaps this morning and say, okay, what's going on in Exodus? What, what, what is this story about? I would say it this way. The Lord is entering into a hostage negotiations with the most powerful man and the most powerful nation on earth. And he's going to free his people. You see, for years, hundreds of years, God's people had been in Egypt And slowly over time, the pharaohs were more and more cruel to the point they are in full-on slavery in Egypt. And God is going to free them. And so God sends Moses to go speak with Pharaoh. And when Moses first goes to Pharaoh and says, on behalf of the Lord, you will let my people go. How does Pharaoh respond? Chapter 5, verse 2 of Exodus, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so what happens is the Lord introduces himself to Pharaoh, as it were, through a round of ten plagues. First, the water of the Nile is turned into blood. And then the land, the frogs, they come and they hop onto the land from the Nile into Pharaoh's bedroom and they're everywhere. And then one morning they're dead. They have to gather them up in piles and burn them, I suppose. Then come the gnats that just nibble at every square inch of skin that's exposed. Then the flies swarm so thick they couldn't be swatted away. That's rounds one, two, three, and four. And now we come to five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And as we've been joking around the office, that when it plagues, it pours. The fifth round this morning where we begin is the plague on the livestock. It's the second plague with a distinction that's made between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. And in that distinction, okay, I'm going to do this to the Egyptians and I'm going to do this to the Hebrews, which is to say nothing. A distinction is made, but but also this promise of whoever wants in on the nothing can get in on it. When the bell rings to start this round, Moses tells Pharaoh that death is coming tomorrow. Still, Pharaoh's not going to release the hostages, he says. I'm not going to read it all here. But when the... Tomorrow comes, so does death. And just imagine, just Pharaoh's livestock, just to to feed hundreds of thousands, if not million people. They're full of noise of livestock, and with tomorrow, they're silent. Not a noise. And yet you go over to the Hebrews and it's as noisy as ever. And I'm not going to read this passage, but just with your eyes, look, look at chapter 9, verse 7. 
Look what it says. This is after the plague. It says, And Pharaoh sent. <laughs> and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Despite all the defeats from the previous rounds, Pharaoh, he can't believe that God would keep his word. So he sends people to check the Israelite ghettos. And behold, in the text, as it says, God kept his word. That round's over. Pharaoh goes back to his corner. Now come the boils. The sixth round of plagues. I'll go more quickly, but let me go ahead and read this one. It's not very long. So if you have a Bible, just just hold it open there. Chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 8 through 12. This one's short. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out on sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So that they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out and sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now, notice how the plague begins. Moses gets soot from the kiln and throws it in the air in the sight of Pharaoh, verse 8. <laughs> that must have been a scene. Right, so, so a kiln was this huge furnace that was used for baking bricks. So clay bricks, mud bricks, with straw, to harden. That's what the Hebrew slaves would have done. And so the kilns... I mean, I mean, just, just, I, I just, this has been fascinating to me. Picture this. Moses goes to the place of judgment and takes the soot and throws it in the face of Pharaoh. As though God is saying, your judgment now thrown back upon you only worse. And I, again, I'm, I'm, my imagination just goes, like, how did he throw that? Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But it just billowed into smoke and the, fell over the land of Egypt. This passage also has the last mention of the magicians. Before the magicians were able to copycat the magic through their secret arts, the passage says, the plagues that Moses was doing here, they're unable, not only are they unable to copycat the miracles, they're so personally afflicted, they have to run and hide. And the magicians know they are in the presence of real power. The one who has a truly great name. The one that can defeat them. They're only skinny cross-country runners. Not that there's anything wrong with that per se. But in the metaphor, they know who they are. Before the sermon, Colton read the passage about the hail, the seventh round of this fight. I remember when I was a child, I, I, I just, I so wanted, I don't know what this, where this desire came from. I just wanted to see really huge hail at some point in my life. Like, I don't know why, I I vividly remember this. And I remember one time, and and I think my parents are watching with my grandma this morning, so they they probably remember this, but we were in Columbia, Missouri, uh, El Chaparral House, that's the street we were on, and I remember it was hailing, and I go outside, um, around the side of the house, and the the hail's only the size of my thumb, but I put it in this little Ziploc baggie, and then I came back inside and stored it in the freezer. 
Um, is this, I don't know if that was the thing that started the desire to see what would really huge hail look like, or that existed before. I don't know the order, but I re- now, as an adult, I don't think I ever want to see really, really huge hail. Not up close, anyway. You can go on YouTube and say, really, really, really big hail, right? Like, if you do that, you will find things telling you from experience this week. You don't want to see really, really big hail. I mean, just imagine your, your fist. Look at, look at your fist. And imagine that as a ball of ice punching down from the heavens. Okay, look at verses 13 through 17. This isn't the mention of the hail specifically, but this is what the Lord is doing with these balls of ice as big as your fist. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me, serve and worship being the same word. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know, we've been making a deal of that phrase for the last six, seven weeks, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the face of the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. How does Pharaoh respond? What's he going to say? The plague comes. Verses 27 through 32. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord, the Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord. For there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Hmm. Let's keep going. We'll talk about that. Moses and Aaron, verse 29, said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hand to the Lord. And the thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Again, just reiterating, the plague will come so that you know that the the Lord is the Lord and the plague will leave when the Lord says it will leave so that you will know. Verse 30, but as for you and your servants, Moses speaking on behalf of the Lord, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Hmm. And there's this parentheses. The flax and the barley were struck down. For the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. So like they've come out of the ground. Okay, they're, they're crops. Verse 32. But the wheat and the em, em, emmer, I think is how we say this, was, was not. They were not struck down for they were late in coming up. They, they, they hadn't come out of the ground yet. They're still in the ground. We got crops still. Okay, so what's going on? Sounds good, doesn't it? For this time I have sinned. The, the Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Verse 27. And the Lord does send the plague away. He, 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 he responds, right? But look in verse 30 what he tells him. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. And I just want to say over you, the Lord can see through all your excuses. I, I don't know. There'll be 300 people here this morning. I don't know who needs to hear that. The Lord can see through all your excuses. You can't give God baloney. 
and expect him to be fooled. I, however, can be very naive. I remember this one time years ago. I was in another city. I was trying to help my friend who at sometimes was homeless and sometimes was not. And, and, and he came to my house and he wanted me to help him get his car back, which he said was taken. Which if we drove around, he knew where it was, we were going to go get it. Okay. So we go. And, and at first, his car is actually, it's not there. It's gone. Uh, and, then, and then we see it being driven like on a street. And he's like, let's go, go get it. And, and so I start to go, and then the, uh, his car starts to speed up. And he's like, go, you got to go. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, I'm not getting a car chase through the hood. Uh, th- th- this is not what we're doing here. Um, but, but, but as it's leaving, we pull up on a hill, and there's a police officer pulling out someone else over. And he's out on the side with his little notebook. And my friend, he rolls down the window and says to the officer, Officer, you got to help me get my car back. That guy's took it. And the officer looks over, calm, but very stern, and goes, you loaned your car out for crack, and I'm not helping you get it back. (laughs) And my friend just puts his head down. (laughs) And then he looks over at me, and I'm like, (laughs) you didn't tell me that part. We're going home for today. And we did. And we had a relationship over several years that was sometimes better and sometimes worse. the, The Lord looks at Pharaoh and says, you're still using the right words, but I know in your heart, you still think you have an angle here. And your repentance, it's only transactional. You're going to say the right words, you're going to do the right things, so that you can get the response that you want. Pharaoh, you still think your name is great, but it's not. So let's keep going. Then we come to chapter 10, two more rounds, the final two this morning, the locust and the darkness, and they both cover the land. First the locust, then the darkness. And I'm not going to read any of them for the sake of time, but I, I, I will point your attention to one verse, chapter 10, verse 7. Pharaoh's own servants say to him, his Pharaoh's servants, after the locusts have come, they say, how long Shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? Like there's this mutiny brewing under Pharaoh's nose. Yet Pharaoh's heart remains hard. So then comes the darkness. The summer my family... We, we went on uh, Indian Echo Caverns. I'd seen the billboards for years. We'd never gone. We go, and there's this place where you're in the cave. I don't know if you've done this. You go, and they say, okay, all right, everybody, just close your eyes. Like, you close your eyes. They turn off the lights, and they say, open your eyes. You open your eyes. There is no difference. It's very strange to be in a literal pitch darkness. Like, there, there's not many times. Like, we say it's dark, and it's dark at night, or it's dark in your house. They're like, but, but, actual, like you cannot see your hand in front of your face. That's how the text describes Egypt for three days. Now what do we make of this? Like Those are the plagues, those are the rounds for this morning. What do we make of this? The book of Numbers, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, like, so these Old Testament books, they're telling the same story When you get to the book of Numbers, they're describing back, and at times looking back over the Exodus story, they're describing the continuation of the Exodus story. What happens when they get out? And they get out, 
Numbers 33 looks back on the Exodus, and I want to read just a couple verses because I think they bring clarity to us about how we should understand these plagues. Numbers 33, I'm going to read actually from a paraphrased version of the Bible called The Message. It says, Numbers 33, they marched out of Ramses, they, the Israelites, looking back over the Exodus, they marched out of the city called Ramses the day after the Passover, which David will be preaching next week. It was the 15th day of the first month. They marched out, heads held high and confident. The Egyptians, busy burying their firstborn, whom God had killed, watched them go. Now here's the line I want to read to you. God had exposed the nonsense of their gods. So Book of Numbers, looking back over this period of time, says God was doing what? Exposing the nonsense of their gods. All the war, all the plagues, all the battle, all the ten round fight, what was God doing? He was flexing the greatness of his name to expose the nonsense of everything else that would set itself up as a supposed God. You see, we often think of these plagues, as I said last week, as strange and arbitrary, and in a way they're strange to us. But they're not strange or arbitrary to the Egyptians. One resource, I came across many who were saying similar things, but there was one particular resource that paired together each of the ten plagues with the gods or goddesses or just God that was overseeing the thing that was attacked in each of the plagues. So, for example, in the Nile, you have God defeating the God Happy, at least as we, I saw it spelled every time, was H-A-P-I, and the goddess Isis, who oversaw the Nile. In the plague of frogs, God defeated the God Hecate, a God imagined to have this frog head, and who, believe it or not, oversaw fertility. Okay? And when you hear that, hear the nonsense of the real God sending legions of frogs into the house. And if you remember the text last week, where does it say specifically they go? Yes, to the bread bowls and the kneading bowls, but into the bedrooms. And I just have to imagine there ain't a lot of fertility happening when you've got frogs in your bedroom exposing the nonsense, the gods of Egypt. And on and on we could go through that chart Each plague pairing up with the gods who oversaw a different part of what the Egyptians believed to be their domain. All the way to the fact that you've got the sun god, or the gods who oversaw the sun, being shrouded in darkness for three days. Now, I'd love to spend more time talking about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, and I sort of promised I would. I'm not afraid to. (laughs) If you've been around church for a while, you know, like Pharaoh's hardness of heart, that's 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 a thing. Over chapter 4 through 14, it's mentioned 19 times. Different ways. The final phrases actually occur in two weeks in that passage, chapter 14. I'm going to try and deal with it then when all the verses are in front of us. So let's leave that. What I want to do as we close this sermon for the next page or so, I want to highlight something that's important for us today. Like This is not a mere history lesson. I've been saying that part of the greatness of God is that, of his name, is that he can defeat all of his enemies. That's true. Let's talk more about that. 
It's common for us today to speak about some illness or another, and our response to that illness in the language of war and battles and fights, defeats and victories. We might describe a battle with cancer, a battle or a fight that a person might win or lose. And, and I think we speak of it this way because for those of them in the midst of it, as some of you are, the struggle is a real battle. For life and death, we we describe it that way because sometimes it is. But I think this language, when we use it with, with disease and illness, about fighting and war and battles, I think it helps us understand something else. It reminds us of the reason we fight. Love. People fight against cancer and other illnesses because they love something or someone or many someones. And in the midst of all this fighting that God does with Pharaoh and the magicians and the Egyptians, it could be possible to lose sight of something critical. Namely, God fights because he loves. God's name is not only great because he can crush and defeat all of his enemies, but God's name is great because he delights to make his enemies his friends. I skipped a verse or two earlier. I skipped a lot of verses in different parts because the passages are just huge as we're going through these. But particularly in chapter 9, Colton read it, but I, I, so I was describing the plagues. I didn't read chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. Look, look with me at those verses. Chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. Look what it says. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord, this is the hail's coming, right? Whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. What does the passage say? Whoever, like anyone, anyone who wants in on this, anyone who fears the word of the Lord, believes that what he says is true, has esteem and reverence for the name of God, rather than being crushed, could be saved. Indeed, in next week's passage, when Pastor Dave is preaching, chapter 12, verse 38, it says that when they leave Egypt, They leave as, quote, a mixed multitude, a mixed company. They come out, not just Israelites, but Egyptians come out of Egypt. Did you know that? Think of the forgiveness that must be available in God's heart to forgive Egyptians. Think of the forgiveness that must be available to forgive you and I. There is so much more forgiveness in God's heart for his true children than we could ever exhaust. I know this to be the soft, tender heart of God because I read about it in the Bible but because I've also experienced it. 
So I grew up in a, a wonderful Christian home where I was taught about the love of God in Christ. So thankful for that. I think it's also fair to say, at least to some extent, I only embraced the love of God and the Christian religion as, as the externals. Like, I went to church because we went to church. I don't know if I would have phrased it that way at the time. But then when I got to college and I didn't have to go to church, I didn't go as often. And also in college, I began to do more intentionally and more overtly something that already had begun to rumble in high school, which was this. I began to build my life on three things. School, athletics, and a relationship with a girlfriend. Like they were, they were, they were it to me. And over the course of one year, they all began to unravel. They just, just fell apart. And, and my world fell apart. In, in athletics, in college, like, it, like I'd get injured or I'd try harder. Or I'd get beat. And i just, okay, i got to get stronger. i got to get faster. And so I'd work harder. And then all of a sudden, like engineering school would just be crushing me. So, all right, got to stay up later. And i got to get up earlier. And i gotta, I got to serve harder. i got to work harder here. I gotta fix this up and stand it up, and then this would fall over, and I'd pick that up, and then the relationship would fall over, and I could do that, and I just was doing this juggle, giving it everything I could with all my might, and they were, all three were letting me down. It was hurt, I was confused, and I was exhausted. It was like, shall we say, God was making nonsense of all my gods, and I'm so thankful He did. I'm so thankful. I won't tell you everything that happened during that season, but a number of key events took place where I found myself in contact with real Christians who loved the Lord. They were genuine. They were sincere. They had joy. And they knew Jesus. And I started reading my Bible for the first time. And I came across verses like like Romans chapter 5, verse 8. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read this verse to you. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, think, while we were still Egyptians, Christ died for us. Not only can God defeat his enemies, but he can also make them his friends. And I know some of you are new to church, you're new to Jesus, and I want you to know that, because you might not know that. God loves you enough to free you from your idols. And what would I say to those of you who have been around the church or our church for a while? I might just say the same thing. Perhaps your heart, slowly, unintentionally, maybe even unknowingly, is drifting back towards other greatnesses. And they're just rising in their level of importance. And I think what God wants to remind us in the story of the Exodus is that there is only one name who is great. It's not your name. It's not my name. And God means to free us from our slavery. We just have to ask for his help and have reverence and awe for the greatness of his name more than any other name in your life. And accept his forgiveness again and again and again. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. That the beauty of your name is that you can crush all of your enemies and one day you will. Finally and triumphantly. But at the same time, your heart is gentle and lowly. And you speak out over all of us that, who are weary and heavy laden. Sometimes because it's our own fault. And you invite us to come and find rest and wholeness and forgiveness. Lord, I pray that we would find those things in greater measure this morning. In Christ's name we pray.